later on today's episode. Yeah. I, so, and it's funny because I think they nicknamed it Paris of the Orient. Okay. Maybe Paris uh, I believe, would be more appropriate. Um, and, 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 and it's interesting because like, I feel like what they described it to your point was like, I felt like I was getting a visual into the roaring 20s of Shanghai because that's yes. how it's described that's how it's the way described. that they're adopting jazz with our with jazz artists that are coming from and these are African-American you know um, people who are migrating over to that area and sharing the art and like the modern hotels the ballrooms and clubs the vibrant nightlife like I feel like there's definitely a comparison to the roaring 20s of the U.S. Mm-hmm. almost transpiring their version there and also like um, I'm not going to jump too far ahead, but like also speaking to how they also start to adopt into their own culture too. So I, that's kind of what it felt like for me for sure. Hello, this is Patrice. Thank you for clicking on this episode here at the Melanated Intellects podcast. We talk about everything from black mental health and personal growth to black world history. And my name is Shayla. Here you will find a balance between topics everyone is talking about and topics no one is talking about. Either way, we guarantee we will be bringing our distinct intellectual perspective. Hey, hey, hey. Thank you for clicking on this episode it is that time of year. I'm mm-hmm. so excited. I mean, I'm always excited about Black History Month, but I feel like this year I was extra excited. I've been telling people about it even before we started recording and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, this is part one. If you've been with us for any significant period of time, you know we try to you know change it up for Black history and, and maybe not do the sort of standard way of doing Black history. And so mm-hmm. in the past, we've done a couple of different things. Last year was really popular. I would say some of our most popular listened to episodes was 100 Years of Black History and um, it was world history. So if you mm-hmm. haven't checked that out, please do. It was a four-part series. And I think we started in the early 1900s and we brought it up pretty much to current day. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and we just did like around the whole world. So like, okay, you know, in the 60s, this was happening here in the U.S., but what was also happening in different countries in Africa in the same yep. time year. So anyway, it was very cool. This year, what we're going to do is highlight four continents, excluding Africa and excluding North America. So um, this episode will be about Asia. So we'll focus on Black history in Asia. Um, we'll also be covering in this series, series, excuse me, Australia, Europe, and South America. So hopefully we bring you some information that you did not know. If you did already know it, that's amazing. And that's really great for you. Hopefully this is just a refresher. Um, and then of course, you know, a nod to our international audience. We have, um, a pretty strong international audience. And so we hope that they learn as well, or at least, you know, maybe feel represented as we cover these different places. Patrice, anything that you want to say before we hop in? I just, I mean, I love how we do Black history. That's probably one of my favorite sections that we focus on as a, as a, as a platform and a big piece is because I know there are very conventional and traditional ways to go about black history. And sometimes they're very siloed and tunnel vision. You know, it's only focusing on one level of experience and usually it's around like just slavery, just here in the U S just that certain time frame. And there are so many layers to the black experience as a whole, as we see it today. And I think the only way we can better understand that is by spending time in the history everywhere, you know, um, and I, I just think it's very valuable. It's very insightful. Um, I love learning about, you know, um, the different angles to approach Black history. And honestly, even this was, um, I'm, y'all going to figure it out. I'm about to nerd out in a minute. So <laughs> this is a good time. So I hope you guys enjoy it too. So yeah, that's all I've got. Yeah. As always, our resources will be in our description. Um, So I always find it, particularly when we do history things, I think if you are interested in these things, please check it out. Because sometimes, just like in today's episode, we find so much information is too much information for us to go over, even in a one hour episode. And so that's what we'll be doing today. We're going to highlight some things, the sources will be in there. And I think 
Um, I'll probably add like an additional section or additional resources where there's some additional resources that were just really cool and interesting, but that we won't have an opportunity to be able to unpack in the time that we have with you all. But I find it fascinating. I always find mm-hmm. history fascinating, particularly when it comes the black diaspora is so vast and mm-hmm. our history expands far longer and wider than just America and slavery. <laughs> Long before slavery came to America, there was us in our history. Yes. So um, anyway, moving on. Um, okay, so let's hop into Asia. So that's the continent we're going to be focusing on. We got a lot of different things that we want to cover and we're just going to hop in. I'm going to list some of the information that we have and then, you know, we'll we'll take it from there. So now this, um, I love Black Past articles. You'll see that we use them a lot. So if you're ever looking for a good site yes. to just start with, they are not paying us. We are not paid to say that. I'm just mm-hmm. putting it out there. So anyway, this is a Black Past article. So... It starts off with this independent historian named Amy Summers, and she is going to sort of go through this brief, but actually it was a pretty lengthy, I would say, article, uh, outline experience of African-Americans in Asia. She focused particularly between World War One and World War Two. Again, there's a lot of history much wider than this range that I'm going to focus on, particularly for this article, uh, but that's the areas. And now she's saying that African-Americans influenced Asia in four major ways, which which would be the performing arts, international relations, faith, and intellectual exchange. And she proceeds, in which we're going to kind of walk through with you all, to explain each of those in these areas. So mm-hmm. performing arts, there's so much with the performing arts, um, but the largest and most visible group of African-Americans in Asia during the two decades between the world wars were the performing artists. Uh, Some artists made a circuit either around the world or they went on tours specifically around Asia itself, including Jakarta, um, Dutch East Indies, Japan, Philippines, Hong Kong. Teddy Weatherford was mentioned. He was in India uh, at one point in time. And then also Bill Hegman, I believe is how you pronounce his name, was in Shanghai. So they, you'll hear us talk about Shanghai a lot because it was like the, the it city uh, when mm-hmm. it came to Black people really being able to um, flourish and find success. It reminded me very much so of our It's Not Black History Month um, being Black in Russia. Uh, we mm, did that in yep, season same, same. two. I want to say it was season two. I'm pretty confident. I love that you're willing to take a guess. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty I confident. love that every time. <laughs> uh, I'll be trying to direct people back, you know, just in case they want to check it out. I want to make it as easy as possible for you to find it. I'm pretty confident. Please don't quote me, but I'm pretty confident it was season two early season two um yeah. it's not black history being black in russia anyway mm-hmm. it very much so reminded me of that same vibe um in the in that way so anyway they had residencies uh teddy and bill and made small fortunes they talked about how bill arrived in the mid-1920s and um performed a lot and operated a studio and music school um, so I thought that was interesting. I had never heard that history before doing this research, to be honest. They also mentioned how finding work in sort of this Great Depression era in America, in Asia, just made Asia that much more attractive. Also, it paid more and the cost of living was lower, particularly in Shanghai. Um, they mm-hmm. kind of made that comparison. Now, performers across America were just recruited, they said, at one point. Again, reminded me very much so of the earlier episode that we had about Russia. Um, they mentioned Earl Whaley and his band from Seattle, Teddy, uh, who was from Chicago. He was a pianist. Um, I, I messed her name up the last time we talked about her, but Baladia Snow from mm. L.A. She was the little Louis Armstrong. We talked about her before. Mm-hmm. Buck Clayton and his 14-piece Harlem gentlemen's who were obviously from Harlem. So those were just to name a few. But to be honest, this seemed like it was quite vast. Those were the ones that were mentioned. I'm sure there are more. And Shanghai just was spoken to very highly. It almost kind of the way the um the 
document explained it kind of reminded me of I don't know if this is a stretch if it is don't be mad at me Dubai of like just like they mentioned like the mm. hotels and like it was very luxury and like the ballrooms and the jazz like you know they just mm. um set this scene like it was a luxurious maybe that's the word I'm looking for a luxurious city or place to be at least from from the perspective of coming from America from African Americans yeah I, so and it's funny because I think they nicknamed it Paris of the Orient okay maybe Paris uh, I believe would be more um and, and and it's interesting because like I feel like what they described it to your point was like I felt like I was getting a visual into the roaring 20s of Shanghai because that's yes. how it's described that's how it's the way described. that they're adopting jazz with our with jazz artists that are coming from and these are African-American you know um, people who are migrating over to that area and sharing the art and like the modern hotels the ballrooms and clubs the vibrant nightlife like I feel like there's definitely a comparison to the roaring 20s of the U.S. Mm-hmm. almost transpiring their version there and also like um, I'm not going to jump too far ahead, but like also speaking to how they also start to adopt into their own culture too. So I, that's kind of what it felt like for me, for sure. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree completely. Um, so here's a quote from Buck Clayton. This was in 1986. He wrote just kind of reflecting on his time in Shanghai. He says, I still say today that this two years I spent in China were the happiest two years of my life. My life seemed to begin in Shanghai. We were, um, we were, we had this opportunity to have change and to be treated with so much respect is what he said. So, um, yeah, definitely took me back to Russia because in that episode we talked about how a lot of African Americans fled the U S and particularly went to Russia for not only Mm -hmm. opportunities as far as jobs, but also we discussed being treated better there Mm -hmm. than they were over here, you know, and the same, was reflected um, in his comment or statement that he made. Now, Clayton, he influenced, um, I like this part. Okay. He influenced the emergence of Chinese popular music with this man named Lee, bear with me if I mispronounce it, Lee Jinhu, I believe is how you pronounce his name. And he's considered to be like the father of Chinese popular music. So what they did is they worked together and they combined American jazz and Chinese music and kind of made like Chinese jazz, you know, together. Um, So they worked closely. Clayton and Lee worked together in order to create that, which I think is so dope um, and awesome when cultures can combine in this way. And I hope, and it sounds like there was this mutual respect and it just sounded like, oh, that's so dope that these two things were able to come together in this way and to be able to learn in this cultural way. And at that time in the world, you know, yeah, so. yes, um, especially for that time in the world. At that, um, let me not jump ahead. Go ahead, keep going. Okay, <laughs> so moving on to to Midge Williams. So Midge mm-hmm. Williams was another artist. Now she was responsible for they called it the vernacular form of jazz, and I just took that to mean she was singing. It wasn't just instrumental, and that was in Japan. Now in 1934, she did a stint in Florida in a Florida ballroom. It says Florida Ballroom, but it was in Tokyo. Florida Ballroom was the name of it. It was in Tokyo. And um, musicians and singers were captivated by her. And she taught, quote unquote, master classes. It would be what we'd be considered today as master classes and sung in Japanese and English. And her contributions were substantial. So she was quite a figure there, well-revered and, you know, made big waves. Anything you want to add to that, Patrice, before we? Okay. Okay, so following World War One, um, even as the U.S. suppressed African American participation in policy and politics and and all of that in Asia, they eagerly sought Black Americans' perspective on emancipation from white imperialist control, and um, they we'll talk about that in just a moment. That mm-hmm. I found that to be very interesting how they wanted the opinions of black Americans because at that time, no one in America was worried about what black Americans was thinking at all whatsoever. And that brings me to where they spoke about APEC, which is Asian Pacific Economic Cooperation and IPR. 
and they said, okay, so IPR was the Institute of Institute, excuse me, of Pacific Relations. It was formed in Honolulu in 1925. And they said the IPR was kind of like the current day APEC. So they kind of made that comparison. But it was the IPR was one of the leading organization getting together and convening and speaking about international discussions in this era. And so APEC offered a connection point excuse me, to address common concerns and issues when it comes to just cross-cultural issues that they felt were uh, of importance. Mm. So I found this to be interesting. They specifically focused on societies around the rim of the Pacific Ocean, okay? But the Mm. organization was governed by um, national councils. Now, the citizens from U.S., Japan, China, Canada, Great Britain, Australia, and New Zealand were all involved here, just to give you an idea of how vast this expanded. Okay, so in 1927, Mm. even though the Japanese specifically requested a Negro of distinction using quotation, I'm using air quotes, be included. America did not want to do that. America was like, mm-hmm. oh, no, no, Negroes ain't got nothing to add. So I found that to be very interesting. Um, not interesting, but not surprising, <laughs> but interesting. And, I, and I'm going to continue on and you're going to see why. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> the IPR's second conference in Honolulu is where this kind of conversation happened, but later on it happened in Japan, the conference, you know, cause they host it differently. And then that's when America was finally like, okay, we'll go ahead and bring one, one, one <laughs> black person. <laughs> I just named like how many countries I didn't count them, but at least five or six countries that was involved here. Okay. I'm they was like, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and bring one because they didn't want to offend Japan. Right. So because Japan was hosting it and was like, Hey, we really want black people. And this conversation had been had prior when it was hosted in um, Hawaii. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Wild to me anyway. So in 1929, uh, conference America waited out and it was like okay we'll go ahead and bring somebody and they ended up bringing um, James Weldon Johnson now he's best known as the co-author of Lift Every Voice and Sing but in his own right very accomplished in a lot of other things but that just might be what you may know him to be so the Japanese media covered uh, James and he was treated like a celebrity. He was invited to a party hosted by the emperor. They presented him as a world figure. He had also previously done some work with the NAACP. So he was not, I didn't get the impression that he was uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. And we had also mm-hmm. talked about how, you know, prior to this moment, we're talking about black people being able to come over to Asia and share in a lot of different ways. So I really kind of felt like based on his NAACP, which I didn't write down his exact position in NAACP, but it definitely involved an international presence Mm -hmm. in conjunction with this. He was not uncomfortable here. Like he was appropriately placed to have this role. Mm -hmm. Anything you want to add to that Patrice, before we move on? It's very interesting how, Excuse me. I was choking on some air a little minute ago. So y'all, sorry if I keep clearing my throat. But it's very interesting to me how um, other countries will use the U.S. in different ways in this discussion and how it plays out. You know, we know Hitler looked at, you know, how the U.S. handled Africans and black Americans for slavery to influence him for the Holocaust. We know that from his book, we know, you know, obviously with this um, information that black Americans also kind of acted as, I I don't want to say consultants, but like they were key pieces that other countries of people of color even identified would be key in trying to address why imperialism and colonialism and that's and that's around the world as well like this wasn't specifically to just one area it wasn't just japan you know like you said the this organization you know met and expanded and 
was ended up being kind of a global network, if you will, just for lack of better words. So it's always interesting, interesting to me to see how that all plays out and connects and how Black Americans are kind of elevating different areas for certain parts of the conversation and who interferes with that. Because, um, so <laughs> sir, mm. sir, how, how are you going to tell me? what we can and cannot contribute you know damn well we might contribute too much and that might be what makes you upset but let me let me not be that patrice right now let me just this is a history we're talking about facts this is what happened it is what it is but i definitely have strong opinions you know learning about that portion when i read the article i kind of like paused like what (laughs) yeah me too because i was just like um i mean i don't you know the article and everything else, of course, is Black History Month, right? So I'm focusing mm-hmm. on Black people as I'm searching for the information. But, you know, I really don't know how many white Americans were going over to Asia at that time and building these connections and relationships and having these cultural kind of melting pots and combinations of these things at this time. So for you to be like, oh, no, Black people don't have nothing to add when Black people have been the one going over there and influencing culture in this really major way that actually we still see today. I was just like, well, that's it's it's a beautiful thing. It's it's a beautiful, you know, um, intertwining of cultures, which is you know we know for one, I love cultures. I love no matter where you come from, I love people who have that aspect of strong culturalism. That's something I'm very, very big on in case the audience hasn't picked up on that from our last three seasons. So for me to see them blend that well, so cohesive and also play true to their talents and their strengths and so on and so forth and lean on each other. That's so beautiful to me. And imagine if that dynamic were to have carried on into other countries, into other experiences, you know, that to me is the true form of a melting pot you know what i mean yeah and you think about it today and when we have that conversation about overlap it looks so differently now it looks so 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 differently there's like the conversation of appropriation versus appreciation and so so much is intertwined in it versus at that point it was very much so innocent it was very much so Mm -hmm. sharing it was very much so i do believe that it was with better intention and the experience spoke to that because black people were going here and having great experiences in these places and that it gives you know that's evidence to me of that um yeah, I'm gonna stop right there. As we no, I, I completely agree. Yeah, I think it felt very organic and kind yes. of like pre all of the things that would be of issue with that today. Yes, right. Like yes, exactly pre all of that. Yes. It just felt so genuine and mm-hmm. new. Mm-hmm. You know, new because I mean, I mean, I don't want to make it seem like. Um, well, no, I guess I, I, it probably is. I don't want to make it seem like Africans and Asians, that was their first time because there are articles that that's not their first time interacting, but right. African-Americans, right? Because we know African-Americans, our journey starts at a very specific point in history. Right. For us in Asia, right. I think right. it was very new. And um, I don't know. Yeah, it just, it felt very organic and this really non-political non like I don't have an agenda but it were just two cultures who respect and are learning from each other mm-hmm. in this really organic way right and honestly speaking from a black experience of today in 2022 and reflecting on a black experience of sorry 2023 and reflecting on a, a black experience of someone in the 1920s so about 100 years ago which is crazy to say, you know, your first introduction, the first time you met another culture, things didn't go that well. Mm. (laughs) And now here you are going to another place and it's not back home. It's a whole nother place with totally different culture, with a totally different language. And the inclusion that is taking place, you know, the, the, um, I don't reciprocated energy is the best way I can think of how to describe it right now. You know what I'm saying? That speaks to the authentic and the, the, um, the need to reach out and find that space and creating it too. Like there was a whole lot of leaning in and give and take between the two cultures, which is to me again, is beautiful. 
But, you know, it's that's a very bold thing to do. The last time your people left the continent that you was on, things got drastically worse. It did it again. You found a great space and it's not amongst people who look like you. Like that is a big, big step. Like I can't say knowing what I know today, that that's something that I would first jump to do. You know what I'm saying? That would be very scary. Like, what will we end up in hell next time? Like, you know, I have no idea. Is this hell? I don't know. You know, um, so it's that it's, it's, it, I think it speaks to just how, how badly black Americans were seeking mm-hmm. that safe space of the, especially at that time. And it also speaks to, what people of many different cultures are capable of without all the things that have been brought into like we bring up today. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, 150% agree. And I love that it was music because yeah. music doesn't need a language, right? Like yep. me and you don't need to speak the same language for us to both enjoy this song. Yep. And um, I thought that was really beautiful of Midge too. I assume she learned Japanese once she got to Japan was my assumption mm-hmm. when reading that. So I think that's beautiful of her to like, oh, I'm going to learn this language and then incorporate it in this song. Like so dope, yep. so dope. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so moving on, um, we're going to speak about a uh, son and father. Um, Percy is the son Chin, Percy Chin, father, Eugene Chin, and Percy's mother was of African and French descent. His mother, I mean, excuse me, his father was Chinese. Percy was born in Trinidad. And they just also played just a a, a major role or participant in this history as this history was unfolding. Mm-hmm. And um, Chin, Eugene Chin, which was a father, became Trinidad's first ethnic Chinese lawyer. So that was a big deal. And then um, Eugene heeded Sun Yat-sen's appeal to the Chinese diaspora to join the revolution overthrowing the imperial system in 1911. In 1912, he went to China serving in various capacities. And in 1926, excuse me, became the foreign minister. And Percy eventually went to China and followed in his father's um, footsteps, especially after he passed. Percy finished law training and he ended up becoming a lawyer as well. I think he did that in England in 1922 and um, practiced in Trinidad and then, uh, you know, later followed his father's footsteps. The the um, article goes on to speak a little more about their story, but that was just the part that I wanted to highlight because I'm like, oh, now you're throwing in Trinidad in there, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know, so I love the melting pot of that. Okay, then we're going to move on to evangelist Edward A. Carter Sr., um, originally from L.A., but lived and moved to Shanghai eventually. And that was over the span of several years, but he had really great success. He started out preaching at like a Chinese YMCA. That's exactly what they called it, Chinese YMCA. And I don't know if that's my ignorance where I felt like I thought YMCA was just here or if they were just comparing it to um, a YMCA, but over in China. That Sounds like an It's Not Black History Month potential episode. <laughs> Where does YMCA Chinese come from? YMCA, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. But that's where he was starting, you know, his journey. And he just attracted a large crowd, standing room only crowds, they said. Um, mm. He traveled to neighboring cities and established holiness missions in Shanghai. And um, he was just a really big figure. Now, he said that being black contributed to his success. And he mentioned this, um, there had been a situation a year or several years prior where white missionaries were killed. I assume they were American, but definitely white missionaries were killed and they were from the Western world and um, they were killed in China by Chinese soldiers and citizens in the Nanking incident. The Nanking incident gets really deep if you don't know the history there um Mm. i recently learned more about that and so that's a deep history if you ever want to check out the history of nanking but he was welcomed uh because he was black essentially and they considered him very different from other westerners so it was Mm. like whites are not welcomed and so he felt like that gave him a leg up and kind of like um 
you know, like, like something different, um, that was able to attract a crowd and it kind of gave him exclusivity. That's the word I'm looking for. It kind of gave him this kind of exclusive thing. So, um, you know, I found that to be really interesting. Now he, um, I may not have wrote this down, but he ended up writing a book and it was all about nonviolence, nonviolent protests, nonviolent, like just nonviolence in general. And it is said that MLK carried that book around him with him everywhere that he went, which we know, of course, MLK was a, a big proponent of nonviolence activism. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting to connect that. Uh-huh. Go ahead. So it does make a lot of sense because I just looked at the YMCA origin <laughs> really quickly. Oh, okay. Um, so, and it, 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 it actually started in London. <laughs> um, so it's, oh, okay. uh, it stands for Young Men's Christian Association. I did not know that. I don't know why I never looked up what it stood for. But Ooh. it started in London in 1844 when a farmer turned department store worker and his friends gathered to organize a refuge for young men seeking escape from the hazards of the streets. So that does explain, you know, the um, religious aspect to it um, as far as him being a part of that and also titling it based, what, what was it, Ch- uh, Chinese YMCA, did you say it was? Mm-hmm. Chinese YMCA, yeah. that's what they call That it. does make a lot of sense. Um, and then when you speak to the the nonviolence, uh, that feels very much on brand as well. Um, knowing what we know about Martin Luther King's teachings, especially knowing that it came from um, uh, that foundation of the book that he wrote. But yeah, uh, very interesting. Okay, so I want to make a correction because I got my people mixed up. I skipped ahead. So Edward A. Carter, pause. He did not write a book. Moving on to our next person, Sue Bailey Thurman and Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman is the one okay. that wrote the book. Because I was okay. like, dang, I could have sworn I wrote that down. I wasn't on the right page. Okay. My apologies. I was like, did I, did I go back and write the names down wrong? Okay. Mm-mm. Okay. Got Mm-mm. you. Mm-mm. I could have corrected you. That's my fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I think I got it wrong. That's me. It's definitely me. <laughs> Nope, it was me. It was me. So I stand corrected. Please don't nobody come at me with my history. Um, I still think Edward A. Carter was a cool dude. The Chinese YMCA part is absolutely correct. So yes, that's correct. Yes, that part is accurate. Yes. Like, so oh, Sue Bailey Thurman, Howard Thurman, it seems to be insinuated in the article that they were the first um, African Americans that Gandhi met. So they um, were just known to be a leading black couple and had their own rights, you know, successes in their own rights, but together were a strong couple and were just intellectuals. And they led the first African-American delegation to India. And that's where Gandhi, okay, so the teachings of Gandhi greatly influenced Howard Thurman and then that's I believe he wrote multiple books but that's when he wrote um a book and um in 1944 the the Thurmans co-founded the first non-denominational international church in the U.S. that's a mouthful um so the most famous book is Jesus and the Disinherited, and it was published in 1949 and used as gospels for nonviolent movement. So that's where the MLK piece came into mind. So anything you want to add to that, Patrice? Um, no, I, yeah, um, (laughs) yes, kind of, yes, you (laughs) want to add? No, yes, no, I do not, yes. Oh, you do not yes want to add. And no. I do okay. not want to add anything. No. You, Is there you anything hit. else you want to say about that Black Past article? Because there was a lot to unpack in there. There was. Um, personally, um, I thought it was I, my behind. I was like, so was this the first documented master class? Do we need to Google where master classes came from? I know. I, I, I'm doing I got much. the impression they use, because they use the word master class in parentheses. So I just they got did. the impression they just put it in current terms they for did. us to understand what she did. <laughs> but that's Midge Williams. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's me doing the most. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, that's, that's just me. Um, I do think that it's interesting. I kind of, my brain does this when I hear about 
all of the different ways in which that we work to escape Jim Crow and lynching and the, mm. this very dark time of the U.S., um, followed by many dark times, especially for the Black experience. So um, it makes me wonder what the resources look like to be able to access a place like Shanghai. Mm. You know, um, it wasn't directly military related. You know what I'm saying? Like you weren't a soldier stationed in Shanghai, like Russia, for example, as we've gone over in our prior episodes, you know, so you had to have resources to get to Shanghai already established. And so it kind of makes me interested, you know, when it comes to the immigration that took place at that time, what were some of the lengths that we went through to get to places like this? Because even today, like these Shanghai is in a place that's not, that's number one and definitely a place that's considered easily accessible for some black people depending on their experience and who they know who have also experienced said experience. So you know, I feel like once upon a time, very recently, and you're in my lifetime, Black people were the least traveling group. Mm. And it became such a big deal to even own a passport and then travel to places. And sometimes that started with neighboring countries. Now you add a place like Shanghai, which is literally the other side of the world. You know, at 19, in 1920, I can only imagine the mindset, the psychological investment that went into making that move happen, especially if you didn't have resources. So that's kind of where my brain goes. I do wish that I kind of dug a little more digging on that because it's literally my questions just now popped up in my brain thinking about that. Like, what did that look like? And what did the folks who did not have resources, how did they make moves like this? And what did that look like? Um, which, you know, we'll have to maybe make another episode or something. But that's kind of where my brain has been going the more we unpack this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I have thought about that. Like, dang, was it, you know, what, what, how did you get over there? What was the yeah. cost to, to get over there? And how long yeah. was the trek? You know? Yeah. Um, like, think about coming yeah. in, the, traveling in the South. Like, you could get lynched on your way to a voting booth at that time. You know what I'm saying? Or trying to get to work at that time. Easily. You know, I imagine... Word got out that she was trying to leave the country. Like, yeah. 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 So, yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So, next, I want to touch really briefly on a history workshop. History workshop is the name of the website. History workshop um, article, which got really deep. If you have time, please do check it out. I'm only going to highlight something small here but the article really spoke about current day current ish day small villages in asia that are african like african small villages and it talked about a lot of different history and was a very informative article so check it out history workshop um so anyway i want to dig into a little bit of numbers here So from that article, it talked about the movement of Africans to South um, Asia was fueled by the slave trade. An estimated 12.5 million Africans were moved across the Sahara, Red Sea, and Indian Ocean to unfamiliar lands. They were rerouted and similar, but long before the U.S. um, needed to be reestablished in these new places. This happened over a millennium, and they said 900 AD to 1900 AD, the Indian Ocean slave trade. Now, it also involved a lot in regards to social religious factors, so um, religious factors played a role, so they wanted to make sure that we knew that, and I just thought, like, man, that's a long time. Like, that's a really long time, and I also spoke about this all in Black history. Uh, for season one we spoke about um south america Mm -hmm. particularly brazil and i think we shared some numbers there because there was a melanated monday that i had shared at that time about the amount of africans that went to brazil versus the u.s shout out to brazil uh, by the way because they (laughs) they are our second most listened to country after the u.s Mm-hmm. Um, and this reminded me of that in this way, because yeah, it was like, like, 
I don't don't get to quote me on it and, and we could bring it up when we touch on South America but it was like slavery came left and is over it by the time America even discovered that you could take Africans away from Africa and enslave them right like it like far mm-hmm. you know so when I saw like 900 AD you know that's far long before America was ready or capable or even had I don't even want to use the word discovered but um found found Africa learned about learned found <laughs> learned yes. about learned, learned about Africa um yeah. so I don't know that those numbers and dates kind of put things into a startling perspective for me yeah um those numbers will are embedded in my brain as a as numbers person. Fourteen percent of slaves came to the U.S. and the rest, I think, it was like some like seventy five percent went to South America. Something like that. It yeah, it was like, like it's like a very drastic. like South America got more than it was anywhere else. It could be. Well, he, I don't know for, for, for sure. Here, there's a map that I know that um, we were referencing from that Maybe article. We'll, we'll check. On yeah, that for, go back and pull it. Point. Um, it, this is the ugly truth about our history that I still become very triggered about, um, which is crazy. Like it's 2022, Patrice, it's, it's history, but I, I don't know why I get emotional about it. Like I get so triggered about it. Like the long standing of slavery in general from Africa you know, like, of course, chattel slavery is the U.S. That's the U.S. is doing. But the U.S. isn't the only country to have enslaved Africans. And there's a reason why it's called the motherland, because there were so many resources. There's a reason why these other countries and these empires were coming to Africa for whether it be goods, whether it be people, what have you, and choosing to take from this place and the work it takes to build back up from something like that. So when people want to stereotype, you know, these melanated countries based off what they believe they see on TV or based off things that have been said by politicians and completely ignore the thousands of years of, of just uprooting and taking from and taking from and taking from. So its own people can't even continue Mm -hmm. to sustain and move as they were or move as they have been without being impacted by weaponized religion, you know, weaponized slavery, you know, colonialism, you name it. Okay. It it just, it's, it really grinds my gears and it really, I get very pissed the fuck off. Okay. For lack of better words, because this is just to speak to it. And I don't want to say we never had a chance, but it feels like that. And that's, that's my raw feelings right now. Mm-hmm. It feels like we never had a chance. Mm-hmm. You know. So many resources being taken. So yeah. many resources. So many millennia, decades of just taking and taking and taking and taking. The well, when was the well actually dry? You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. it's, 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 an, it's insane. Um, and to know that there's still elements of it happening today. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's a lot for me to process. And this is the ugly part of, you know, uh, personally for me, when it comes to me and my relationship with my Black experience, I have always romanticized Africa as the place to be, the place that's home, the place that holds the roots of our culture, the foundation to our culture, what we know today. And, you know, had X never happened we would have a better experience. But the reality is X was happening at such a wide scale that that is how we, that's how this happened. That's that, that is how it all came to be, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you could prevent something that big from happening. Yeah. Over such a span of time. And, yeah. and yeah. the mindset. So fast. Like, 
who just says, hey, I see these people who look different. So I'm going to pick them to try to clean my stuff and do this and do this and have to work for me for free and blah, blah, blah. Who, like, the mindset behind it is wild. And granted, I'm obviously biased being that I am said melanated descent. But it's just, it's, I, I'll, the justification behind it that all these different groups of individuals had that said, yes, this is where we need to get our resources from. It, it's mind-blowing. It's it's absolutely mind-blowing. But, um that's me. Sorry. That's my rant. That's my Patrice emotional. <laughs> no, it's fair. It's fair. And I'm all in like, even though I, I, now I know much more of my history, of course, after being on this podcast, cause like I've said this before, but I think it's been a yeah. long time since I've said it. I learn when you guys learn, like some of it, I know, but a lot of it, I don't know to the detail that I shared with you. I'm learning it as I, you know, uncover it to give it to you right. and prepare for the episodes. And, right. but even with me knowing it, like, Every time I'm faced with the numbers and the time frames, and the, I'm still my it's still beyond my current yes. comprehension, as if I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. So I hope that makes sense. But yeah. um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway, okay, so we're gonna move on to the West Indies. So in eighteen in the eighteen sixties, Chinese people were imported for labor and trade um, to the West Indies, and it became more common for a Chinese man to marry a black woman than it was for him to marry a Chinese woman because there wasn't a lot of Chinese women around. Okay. Now, according these numbers, okay, let's check these out. Okay. According to the 1946 census, 12,394 Chinese were located between Jamaica and Trinidad. 5,515 of those who lived in Jamaica were, um, Chinese Jamaican. And then they were, I don't know how to combine those two. They were Chinese Jamaican descent, as in a Chinese parent and a Jamaican parent. Another 3,673 were Chinese Trinidadians living in Trinidad. Um, a small percentage of this also happened in um, Haiti. And they mentioned uh, a man named Edward um, or Edward. Edward Wall, I think is how you say his last name. Anyway, he had a Chinese father and a Haitian mother, and he was an artist, very popular artist. So those numbers were very interesting to me. Knowledge I did not have, definitely. No, uh, did I did not. Definitely did not know. And then once you started talking about like 1940s, I was like, that's not that long ago. <laughs> I was like, oh, I didn't know this at all. You know what I mean? Like, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, 1940 census. Oh, okay. There's a lot of Chinese Jamaican slash Chinese Trinidadian people out there. I appreciate you and respect that. Didn't know that that I was a no dynamic. I, I had no, no clue. clue. <laughs> no I am clue. now educated. Okay. It's okay. Let me stop now. Go ahead. <laughs> No, I was just like, you know, that, no, that's it. Like, I just, I was like, I'm gonna highlight these statistics because um, I think it's just important to highlight because, you know, of course, at first we were talking about African-Americans going over to Asia, right? In this case, you're Mm -hmm. talking about Asia coming to melanated countries, Jamaica, Trinidad, Haiti. Um, So, you know, I just find it to be interesting. I don't, I'm just not anything I have to say about it one way or another, but it's just interesting. Well, it's, I think it's very interesting because, you know, if you think about our black experience and I just had to dig this up to make sure I got the time right. Interracial marriage wasn't even legal until 1967 in the U S. Mm, okay. So and you know, even that then at that be... time it was very tense. Fair. That could be my interesting shock. Cause like yes. perhaps, because again, we have a, a wider, maybe than most international audience and yeah. perhaps, you know, I'm sure we look at things from a very American perspective, mm-hmm. but um, to your point, it wasn't even legal. And even when it was legal, it really wasn't. I mean, but you okay, still risking, you you're risking the- your life by doing yes. it, right? <laughs> um, even yeah. current day, like, yeah, sure. There's plenty of interracial um, relationships, but I feel like probably in comparison to other places in the world, we are more conservative when it comes to interracial dating and relationships here in the U S because if you know, uh, we talked about it in um, being black in Nazi Germany, which was a, it's not black history month. 
And then we also covered another point in history that I can't think of right now earlier in this season. And we were talking about, oh, um, the descendants. The descendants, Mm -hmm. we also talked about a black woman with a German man. In both cases, they were separate stories, right? And we highlighted their stories as well, right? Mm -hmm. One, it was during, he was a German soldier. He was a Nazi soldier. So like, obviously that's news. But, Mm -hmm. you know, just in general, I like to highlight that because I think particularly here in the U.S., I just feel like we are very, um, it's just more rare here, I would imagine, than there are in other places in the world. And and it's interesting because Chinese does also China not Chinese China does also have a history of slavery, of melanated mm-hmm. people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But that goes to show you just how different it was, you know, the levels that America went to create these racial barriers. Yeah, you know, experiences, education, you name it. It wasn't just about being a maid and cleaning a house. You know what I'm saying? chattel slavery had this level of impact on both parties to the point where even today there's still ongoing discussion and a very tense ongoing discussion about interracial marriage we just codified the law last what last week or the week before that that made it to where we can no longer potentially undo interracial marriage we just did that a week ago that's crazy you know what i'm saying and other countries it's not nearly as much of this political statement or, you know, um, for or against or anything, you know, which polarized. Yeah, I don't yes, think polarized. polarized. That's the word. In yes. other places. And we touched on, um, we didn't touch. I feel like we got a, a pretty decent dive into American chattel slavery in our we opened up this season with post-traumatic slave syndrome, which is a book mm-hmm. written by Dr. Joy DeGruy. And she has so much to say. And I want to say it was part two. Please don't quote me. It may have been part one, but I think it was part two. And we really dissected American chattel slavery in comparison to other slaveries and why it was different. And mm-hmm. we unpacked all of that, right? So mm-hmm. um, so you're right. Yeah, from a very American perspective, slavery equals this very tunnel vision view of mm-hmm. things that was not necessarily, could have been, but not necessarily the experience of an enslaved person um, around the world. And long before, again, long before America even existed to have the Jim Crow laws and to do the, you know, to even be established as a country. So, um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. interesting. Yes. Um, One last thing I wanted to jump on to, because I told you I was going to nerd out. So um, (laughs) I... For those who don't know, Patrice is a nerd. I love my uh, martial arts, which does come with a pat with a small nerdiness for like anime and the martial arts world. I'm a crouching tiger, hidden dragon type of person. Okay, that's that's me. Okay, Bruce Lee, Jet Li, all that. I love it. Okay, my father was heavy on the martial arts '70s type movies, and I just adopted it. Okay, I I can't explain it. But anyway, so when we decided to do this, the first thing I thought about was the Black Samurai. And um, very profound story. Um, so I won't go into a lot of detail, but basically some of us are familiar with it. There is a Netflix um, anime. I want to say um, it's it's a series, if I remember correctly. I didn't watch it all. I didn't watch it all recently, but I watched it a while ago, um, maybe when it first came out on Netflix. But it's a story of the Black Samurai. His name is Yasuke. And, you know, I don't, many people did not know about it. I feel like it surfaced on the internet maybe five years ago and kind of just started to have whispers of a discussion um, kind of growing. And at one point, I feel like even there was talks of a movie being made that was going to start Chadwick Boseman. And it was actually confirmed in 2020 that he would play the role of Yasuke. But unfortunately, um, Chadwick Boseman did end up passing. But to get into um, the story, man, that would be so Imagine, oh my, it broke, it breaks my heart. I love Chadwick Boseman so much already, but it breaks my heart to see, you know, some of the roles that he wasn't able to um, participate, especially this one. This was a very, 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 very big one. Um, But in the documentary, or not documentary, it's not documentary, it's a cartoon, it's a cartoon, anime cartoon. But um, Lakeith Stanfield does um, portray the voice for Yasuke. 
But um, basically, um, to kind of go into the story, Yasuke was born in 1550, and he's believed to have been in Ethiopia. Not much is known about him. Um, his birth name isn't known. His um, actual date of birth isn't known. He's just kind of speculated to have came from Ethiopia or Sudan. But um, he basically arrives in... Um, in 1579, he arrives in Japan with an Italian Jesuit missionary whose name was Alessandro Bellignano. And he is believed to have been his bodyguard. It's not really known whether or not he was the slave of Alessandro. Some believe he was because obviously he was working for him, but because he carried a sword is really why they were like, oh, he's not a slave. He's allowed to bear arms, which, you know, in some other countries, obviously that's a hell no. You know, you are not bearing arms mm -hmm, if right. you are a slave. Um, he was also trained as well. But um, so in 1581, Balignano and Yasuke traveled to Kyoto where they met Oda Nabunaga, a powerful um, feudal lord who was seeking to unify a Japan divided several warlords. So um, he kind of joins forces. And in this story, it talks about how Oda is looking at Yasuke and he's like, what's wrong with his skin? <laughs> and he didn't believe, you know, that he was black. He thought he was just dirty. And um, Yasuke is described to have been, um, basically it's a diary of the samurai, but he is described to have been six feet, two inches, and his skin was like charcoal. It's basically the description for him. But um, it, he ends up earning Oda's respect and proving to be a samurai based off his skill level. And he ends up serving and I'm um, fighting alongside him. But long story short though, there's like this whole portion within the story where he's like, why aren't you clean? Go take a shower. And then, you know, he didn't believe him. And so at some point he even has other maids go and clean this man to prove that his skin is actually naturally like that because they didn't believe that he was naturally just with black skin, which is very interesting to me because, um, the, Japan, I don't know what parts of Japan it was, but that kind of speaks to how siloed it was to have encountered melanated people. Mm. To, and, and there are dark skin Japanese people do exist like that. That is a thing. So it was kind of interesting to me to kind of learn that, that there was so much shock. But again, like obviously maybe melanated Af um, skin is very it was different levels to different what can levels. be considered normal for dark even a Japanese Japan. Yeah, dark-skinned individuals. So, but it was interesting. It's a great story. I definitely highly recommend looking into it. Um, talks about kind of his journey um, and also being recognized as the first black samurai. He's kind of been um, a very, he's a very key staple to history. And um, it kind of talks about how he earned his name, Yasuke, as well. Um, so definitely a great, great story. Um and again, like knowing that Chadwick Boseman won't be portraying the story, I do hope that they do still tell the story of Yasuke, just because I still think that, especially knowing how much um, anime has grown and gone viral in the last maybe three years on TikTok and some of our social media platforms, just the engagement of Black people in anime today is so high. Like, there's a huge audience to tell this story to that I think everyone can really benefit from, no matter what age or demographic you come from. So. Yeah, that's that's my little contribution of my nerdiness. I yeah, I I really do hope they still tell the story, um, mm -hmm. even if it's not Chadwick Boseman. I did. I felt like I thought that I read that they ended up recasting it just recently, but I would have to go back to confirm that. Mm. Okay. Um. Yeah. Very interesting. Very good info. Um. So much more. We only mm -hmm. scratched the surface of mm -hmm. um, Black and Asian history combo. So again, um, you know, do more research, check out our resources. You know, a lot of times when you check out a page, it leads you to another page, right? Mm -hmm. So this is interesting. <laughs> if you want to dig, dig more into it, if you were an individual who liked the 100 years of Black history, which there are a lot of you out there, then I think this year should be equally as exciting for you if you got into that. So check it out. I think, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think... 
new history or new history to us should always be interesting. Nothing against the history that we know. Um, but I think it's always important to expand that. Is it <laughs> the hist- yeah, the history that we know is still important. It's still it, relevant. I mean, it's important, but could it be told I don't want better? Us, I think it could have been told I don't better. want us to forget the history that we know, but I just want us to add on to that. You know, I want us to expand yeah. upon the history that we know and try to think of it from a, a much broader lens, which hopefully. Yes. We, yeah, we for sure. Here. So, for sure. Um, yeah, check out all all of that good stuff. Um, if you don't already follow us on IG at Melanated Intellects, please do. There is a survey that's in the link of every description for this series, excuse me, for this season. Um, just a quick few minutes, really like not even five questions. I don't think just take you a couple minutes, fill it out Mm -hmm. for us. It's a survey just helps let us know Patrice and I know, you know, what's going on. And that's that. And I guess I'll buckle your seats because we got three Another more one. continents left. And uh, we hope you guys have a good time. Patrice, mm-hmm. anything you want to add before we head out? Um, honestly, like I'm I'm so happy that we do we're doing this again. Um, especially like I know the last time we talked about the black and Asian um, relationship, I believe, was in our Latasha Harlan's episode. So to kind of revisit this, like historically what it has looked like, I think that that's like a great comeback to it and the potential of what happens when two cultures come together and what that can look like. So, um, yeah, this is, this is, this is good. I'm excited for what's to come next in our next episode to be determined. And, um, yeah, y'all hear from us next week. Bye.